Great. Thank you, Donna. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is Jeff Lennox again, one of the co-moderators. And uh, for the next session, we're going to have Dr. Raj Gandhi, who's a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and at Mass General Hospital. And he's going to be talking to us about COVID-19, including the overlap between COVID-19 and HIV. Okay, Raj, thank you for agreeing to update us today. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you all for your participation. Um, so the next 35 minutes or so, we're going to go through a couple of different areas of COVID-19, obviously an incredibly rapidly moving uh, field. Here are my disclosures. So we'll talk uh, a bit about the major clinical manifestations of COVID-19. We'll spend some time on um, issues relating to treating a person with COVID-19. And then we'll summarize our current understanding of COVID-19 and people with HIV. Uh, given the audience, I thought this would be of particular relevance. And so we won't explicitly talk about vaccines, but happy to do so in the uh, discussion period. So let's go ahead and get started. The way I like to think about COVID-19 is in um, several different dimensions. Um, I like to think about the host as well as the clinical manifestations. And when I think about the host, obviously adults, children, and some of the risk factors for severe disease, and we'll, we'll talk about those. Um, I then think about the stage and severity of disease. Do they have early infection? Do they have late infection? Is it mild? Is it moderate? Is it severe or is it critical? And then when I'm thinking about treatment, I think about the particular category of intervention. Is it an antiviral? Is it a um, immunomodulator? Is it a combination? And then I think about the complications, and we'll talk about some of those. So word about transmission. Uh, this is obviously continues to be an area of active um, discussion. Um, transmission of SARS-CoV-2 is primarily through respiratory droplets. The virus, it's, virus itself may be aerosolized and transmitted during certain activities. There's been reports of that happening during singing or during um, aerosol-generating procedures, such as intubation or the use of nebulizers. Uh, the role of aerosols in transmission, of course, is under active investigation and active discussion, and happy to talk about that during the Q&A. It is important to remember, and I think this is also well known, that asymptomatic and presymptomatic people are infectious. In some series, that accounts for up to half of, um, of cases. And the nasopharyngeal viral levels tend to peak just before or soon after symptom onset. The incubation of the infection is somewhere around four to five days median, about 98% of people um, who develop symptoms will do so within about 12 days. Classic symptoms of COVID-19 include fever, coughs, sore throat, malaise, and myalgias. People can have gastrointestinal symptoms, uh, anorexia, nausea, and diarrhea. Maybe about 3% of the time those will be the, the main, if not only, symptoms. Taste and smell disturbances um, can occur. And then shortness of breath develops in some individuals with a median um, lag of about five to eight days after symptom onset, and that can be a harbinger of, of worsening disease and tends to raise concern. Laboratory findings, particularly in those who are hospitalized, include lymphopenia. Uh, sometimes people can have really profound elevations of some of their inflammatory markers, and as well as some of the um, uh, coagulation markers, such as D-dimer, LDH, CRP, ferritin, liver enzymes may be elevated, and interleukin-6 may also be high. Here are some classic radiographic features of COVID-19. It's amazing for a disease that's only been around for a few months that we have some classic radiographic features. Typically in COVID-19, uh, patients will have 
peripheral bilateral ground glass opacities seen best on CT with or without consolidation. Obviously, for uh, some instances, the chest X-ray alone will suffice. If you do do a CT, you might see these rounded morphologies. This is shared by one of my colleagues and really, um, really distinctive uh, peripheral um, rounded morphologies um, bilaterally. Diagnosis still most often is through PCR testing of the nasopharyngeal swab. As I mentioned before, but I'll reiterate now, um, SARS-CoV-2 levels tend to peak just before symptom onset, but problematically, they can remain detectable for really quite a long time, um, uh, on average about three weeks, but we and others, and probably you have seen uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, RNA PCR positivity out for several months. Viral RNA that may be detectable long after um, infectious virus is no longer culturable. So in some series, virus is no longer culturable, usually after about eight to nine days of symptoms, at least in immunocompetent patients. Now, SARS-CoV-2 has now uh, been recognized as really a multi-system disease, and this is showing you some of the manifestations in adults. Although we initially thought of it as a respiratory illness with some of the features I've already mentioned, SARS-CoV-2 can also cause neurologic complications. It can cause cutaneous manifestations. I'll show you an example in a moment. SARS-CoV-2 can affect the heart. It can affect the kidneys. Uh, it can um, cause gastrointestinal symptoms or elevated liver enzymes. And then it can cause a systemic uh, illness uh, characterized by abnormalities in the, in the blood counts, coagulopathy, and a profound inflammation. And when we talk about treatment, we'll, we'll hearken back to this. Here are some of the um, cutaneous manifestations that you've probably all heard uh, about or perhaps seen. This is the, these are the so-called um, uh, COVID toes. These are pernio or chilblains-like lesions. What they classically are are erythematous or violaceous macules. They can be papules or papular nodules. And these are usually on the tips of the digits and on the soles of the feet. Um, they're part of a spectrum of disease and, um, and sometimes can be evident um, a little bit later on in the course of disease as well as early on. They're still being defined as to where they're most commonly seen. Cardiac manifestations, we and others have seen these uh, in some of our uh, sickest patients. Uh, patients can have acute cardiac injury with highly elevated troponins. Individuals can present with heart failure and even cardiogenic shock. We've seen a few cases of myocarditis cardiac arrhythmias, and then thrombosis. Now, the thrombosis may be part of a spectrum of what is sometimes being called thromboinflammation. Patients who are hospitalized with severe COVID-19 have a variety of different risk factors for thrombosis. They're acutely ill, they're bedridden, they may have fever and other um, uh, organ system dysfunction that puts them at risk for thrombosis. But then the inflammatory response itself may have an uh, impact on the endothelium. It may actually cause endothelial dysfunction. In severe disease, there may be hemostatic abnormalities, such as um, um, profound derangements in D-dimer and some of the other um, coagulation markers. And the clinical outcomes we and others have seen, um, and really throughout the world, have included venous thromboembolism, pulmonary emboli, effects on the heart that we've touched on, as well as disseminated intravascular coagulation. These tend to be the sickest of our patients. Um, early on from China, it was recognized that inflammatory biomarkers are associated with more severe disease and even mortality. 
what you're seeing here in the red are non-survivors and in blue are survivors. And there's a really um, marked difference, a separation between the survivors and the non-survivors in terms of levels of D-dimer, interleukin-6, and CRP. There's beginning to be uh, autopsy studies uh, uh, showing us some information about the pathology of COVID-19. This particular series was in the New England Journal a, a month or so ago. What they did in this particular study is they compared lungs from people who died of COVID-19, there were seven of them, compared them on autopsy to the lungs of those who had influenza-related ARDS, as well as uninfected individuals. And what the COVID lungs showed is that there was marked endothelial injury. Um, you may be able to see my pointer here in the middle. This is showing a lymphocytic pneumonia with an endotheliitis, basically um, damage to the endothelium. There was widespread thrombosis, and then there was these microthrombi that were throughout the lungs, as well as a distinctive feature called intussusceptive angiogenesis. So really um, showing that COVID is, is causing vascular injury and angiopathy. Now, just one word about children. Um, uh, in children, there's a distinctive syndrome called the multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC. This is an acute vasculitis that has similarities to Kawasaki disease. Children may present with fever. They may have um, rash. They can have a bulbar conjunctivitis. Um, sometimes the children will have uh, gastrointestinal symptoms, including um, quite severe abdominal pain. And this can progress to shock and cardiac dysfunction. Interestingly, in MISC, sometimes respiratory symptoms may be absent. And it's thought, although this is still being defined, that children may, in some instances, have had recent uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection and that this MISC may be representing a post-infectious hyperinflammatory syndrome. One reminder for all of us who take care of adults and more than children, there have been cases of MISC um, in people in their late teens. Uh, we've seen people 18, 19, and we've seen uh, a few individuals in their early 20s, and that's also been reported from New York City and other parts around the country. Okay, so now let's switch from some of the clinical manifestations to um, the spectrum of disease. And I do this because this plays into the um, discussion around treatment. So here are the stages of um, COVID-19, starting with asymptomatic or presymptomatic infection. In this instance, patients have a positive SARS-CoV-2 test, but, but don't have symptoms. Mild illness, we've touched on some of these, but it's quite variable from fever, cough, short, sore throat, taste and smell disturbances, but no shortness of breath and no abnormal imaging. Moderate illness, patients have preserved or normal oxygen saturation, but now they have evidence of lower respiratory tract disease. Either they have clinical evidence of that or imaging findings. Severe disease is characterized by low oxygen saturation, hypoxemia, or extensive lung infiltrates. And then critical illness is respiratory failure, shock, or multi-organ dysfunction. Now, from data out of China, about 80% of people with COVID-19 will have mild to moderate disease. Somewhere around 15% will have severe disease, and about 5% will have critical illness. And this varies a lot depending on what people's risk factors are. So that brings me into a discussion of risk factors for severe COVID-19. The ones on your left are clearly associated in multiple series. So older age in every series has been associated with severe COVID-19. In a study that was in Nature last week, people in their 80s had a 20-fold greater risk of severe COVID-19 and, and death than people in their 50s. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and, in, and um, the UK study, uh, severe asthma, 
cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, obesity is a consistent risk factor for severe COVID-19, sickle cell, chronic kidney disease, and then being immunocompromised from solid organ transplant. These are largely from the CDC website from last week. Possible risk factors, the CDC called out the possibility of pregnancy being associated with severe COVID-19, and then other immunocompromised states, including HIV. And we will talk about that. This is still uh, an area of controversy. What is not an area of controversy is that there continues to be a disproportionate burden of COVID-19 among racial and ethnic minorities, Native Americans, and the poor. And we'll come back to that as well. So here's a kind of a spectrum of illness and the goals of treatment across the COVID-19 spectrum. So in the early phases before exposure, the goal of treatment is to try to prevent infection. This is called pre-exposure prophylaxis. Once someone has been exposed, what you're trying to do is prevent acquisition or prevent disease, and this is typically called called post-exposure prophylaxis. Once someone has COVID-19, the goal is to treat the disease to prevent progression, complications, and death. And it's possible that early treatment may actually also prevent transmission. And then once they're in the recovery phase, you're trying to hasten their recovery and clear the infection. In terms of disease pathogenesis, we think that viral replication is particularly important early on in the course of illness, and that later on in the course of illness, once people are severely ill or critically ill, a hyperinflammatory response tends to be the, the mainstay or the, or the main driver. And therefore, the main interventions that people are looking at, antivirals and those interventions that boost immune responses, we think will probably have their greatest impact earlier in the course of disease. And then once people are more severely ill, um, I think a lot of the focus there is on decreasing inflammation. And I'll show you some examples of these three um, interventions now. So here are some of the antivirals that are under study. Um, uh, the virus enters through two receptors, ACE2 and Tempress2, and a drug called Camistat is trying to zero in on that particular part of the virus life cycle. Membrane fusion and endocytosis, a drug we've all heard about so much. Hydroxychloroquine is thought to uh, work on that stage. The viral protease and uh, repurposed HIV drug, lopinavir-ritonavir, which we'll come back to, um, is targeted there. And then the drug for which we have the most data uh, is remdesivir, and that's an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase inhibitor. So just two slides on hydroxychloroquine. We all remember back in March and April and even into May, largely what we were um, seeing were single-arm studies as well as uh, data from observational cohorts. Um, what has come online in the last uh, month or so are, are results from randomized control trials. The first large one of these was from the University of Minnesota. This was a post-exposure prophylaxis trial of hydroxychloroquine. Uh, you can see really no difference in terms of the uh, effect of hydroxychloroquine versus placebo in terms of preventing COVID-19 after exposure. There are some limitations to the study. Um, most participants were enrolled several days after exposure, and most of these were syndromic um, COVID-19. There was only 2 to 3% that had confirmed diagnosis. Most recently, there are two studies, large studies, one done in the UK, one done here in the United States that have looked at hydroxychloroquine for hospitalized patients. Data from these are still coming out. These are two kind of top-line uh, results, one from the recovery trial in the UK showing no benefit of hydroxychloroquine in people who are hospitalized. You see the mortality difference is, is, is there is none. And then the National Institutes of Health just recently stopped a trial called ORCID, which is also being done in hospitalized patients because um, although the treatment did no harm, it provided no benefit. That's, again, just the top-line results and more data um, 
to come. Let's say a word about remdesivir. This is a drug that has a role in COVID-19. It's a nucleotide prodrug. It inhibits the viral RNA polymerase. In a rhesus macaque model of COVID-19, it reduces COVID levels, or sorry, SARS-CoV-2 levels in the lung, interestingly not in the upper respiratory tract, and ameliorates disease. And then in an NIH trial called ACT in humans, um, a randomized trial, what remdesivir was associated with was more rapid recovery than placebo, 11 days versus 15 days. There was a strong trend towards a mortality benefit, but it was not statistically significant in a preliminary analysis. And the benefit of remdesivir was clearest in those who were on supplemental oxygen, but who were not intubated. So somewhere in the severe disease category, but not yet the critically ill disease category. In the simple trial, a manufacturer trial, and people who had severe COVID-19, but weren't intubated, Five days of remdesivir was as good as 10 days, and I'm happy to talk about that in the discussion. A word about antibody therapy. Antibodies are also probably going to work, we think, earlier on in the disease course. You can either um, use convalescent plasma, uh, plasma from people who've recovered from COVID-19, or there are now monoclonal antibodies targeting the virus. In an open-label randomized trial of convalescent plasma from China, um, there was no benefit in the overall population, but there was a suggestion of benefit in severe disease. This particular trial is not by no means definitive. It was underpowered, had to be closed early, and the convalescent plasma was started quite late, a median of 30 days after symptoms. Again, if this is going to work, I think it's going to work earlier. In terms of safety of convalescent plasma, uh, there's been over 20,000 people here in the United States that have gotten convalescent plasma through an um, emergency use authorization. What we can say so far is that transfusion reactors are incredibly rare, less than 1%, and there's a low rate of other complications. But as to whether it works, um, uh, still to be determined. And there are ongoing prophylactic and therapeutic trials of convalescent plasma and monoclonal antibodies. And then last, um, the drug that has shown a mortality benefit, this was one of the um, uh, pre-session questions, the drug that has shown a mortality benefit in COVID-19 among those who are mechanically ventilated is dexamethasone. So there's been controversy about the use of steroids in viral pneumonia and in acute respiratory distress syndrome for many, many years. But given the hyperinflammatory state that I've touched on, steroids have been evaluated as a potential intervention. And in an open-label study, a randomized study among hospitalized patients done in the UK, over 2,100 people got dexamethasone and 4,300 people or so got usual care. What you can see in the table is that there was a 17% reduction in mortality among all participants. The relative risk was 0.83. But this was largely driven by people who were the sickest. Those people who were on ventilation or ECMO had a 35% reduction in uh, mortality those who were on oxygen, supplemental oxygen, but not yet critically ill, had a 20% reduction. And importantly, those who were not on oxygen, hospitalized but not on oxygen, had a trend towards a higher mortality. It was not significant, but could not rule out harm. So the conclusion is that dexamethasone is associated with decreased mortality among those who are on supplemental oxygen or on mechanical ventilation or ECMO. This is the right answer to the pre-test question. This is the drug that has shown a mortality benefit on those on mechanical ventilation, but no benefit and potentially even harm in people who are earlier in the stage of disease. 
Now, two treatment guidelines I want to draw your attention to. Um, this is, again, for the, for the population of people um, with COVID-19. One is from the National Institutes of Health, and then another is from the Infectious Disease Society of America. These are living documents that are updated um, very frequently uh, with the intent to reflect the rapid pace of knowledge in, in the field of COVID-19 treatment. Okay, so let's return now to our kind of paradigm in terms of where these drugs are um, thought to work. What I've shown you is that remdesivir and dexamethasone do have a role in uh, probably in the moderate to severe disease for, for remdesivir and in the severe to critical disease for dexamethasone. Now, one point to make here is, as I started by saying near the beginning, most COVID-19 is mild, at least 80%, probably more. But most of the trials to date, and all of the trials I've been really focusing on so far, have focused on either moderate, severe, or critical illness, those people who are in the hospital. And here's a slide one of my colleagues put together. Um, much of what has been done throughout March, April, May, and June has been in this category over here of um, the severely ill patients, hospitalized, respiratory failure, et cetera. You can see a variety of things are being studied in, in this particularly ill group. But it's very possible that the greatest bang for the buck that we'll get for treatment may be earlier on in the course of the disease. We've learned from HIV that treatment uh, translates into prevention. And so in the next phase, certainly a lot of people are now turning their attention to earlier stages of uh, treatment when people are just exposed, recently infected, before they get in the hospital to see if we can not only help those patients, but perhaps also prevent transmission. So um, before turning to the issue of COVID-19 and HIV, I just want to sum up a couple of my thoughts on this multidimensional challenge of COVID-19. As I hope I've convinced you, COVID-19 prevention and treatment really requires a multidimensional approach. We need to understand the host that we're treating. We need to know where we are in the stage and severity of disease, and then, of course, the intervention. Depending on the stage, sorry, depending on the host stage severity of disease, the therapies may very well differ. Antiviral therapy, immunomodulatory therapy, and then combination therapy really may need to be applied uh, in different stages and even in different hosts. I also want to um, just draw a couple of lessons from HIV that I think are directly applicable to our challenge with COVID-19. I think we and others all throughout the United States felt enormous pressure, feel enormous pressure to deploy interventions, um, but that pressure has to be tempered by the importance of finding out if a treatment actually works. And that was the lesson of HIV, and that's been the lesson throughout uh, really all of medicine, that our guide has to be the science. And then the other lesson from HIV is that we're going to have to build, and we are going to build on an iterative process. We'll start out with some drugs that work, whether it be remdesivir, whether it be dexamethasone, and then build on those advances until we reach a, a tipping point. And I think the progress with COVID-19, I hope, will be even more rapid than it was with HIV, but it's going to be the same iterative process. So in the last 10 minutes or so, let me shift my attention and our attention to COVID-19 and HIV and try to address three specific questions and um, go through an update as to where we are with these three specific areas. First, is HIV a risk factor for severe COVID-19? Second, do HIV medications themselves have activity against the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus? And then we'll sum up with just a little bit um, about what is the impact of COVID-19 on HIV care here and around the world. So I want to start out with some local information from MGH. Um, 
This is a series we put together about our own experience with HIV and COVID-19. Um, between March 3rd and April 26th, um, we identified systematically through our electronic medical record 36 people with HIV who had confirmed COVID-19 and an, another 11 with probable infection. One of the main points here, as well as in other series from around the country and around the world, is the vast majority of our patients had some other comorbidity in addition to their HIV that put them at substantial risk for complications. So 85% had another non-HIV-related comorbidity, whether it be obesity, cardiovascular disease, or, or a litany of others. So that's one important lesson for us all to think about, is think about the other comorbidities in addition to HIV. The other point that is clearly the case throughout our country and really throughout the world is the disproportionate burden among racial and ethnic minorities of COVID-19. Of those um, patients in our cohort, 77% of our patients with COVID-19 and HIV were non-Hispanic Blacks or Latinx. And in our clinic as a whole, uh, only about 40% of patients in our clinic are Blacks or Latinx. And so clearly a, a disproportionate effect among uh, patients who are uh, racial and ethnic minorities. And then the last point from this case series is that nearly half of our patients either lived or worked in a congregate setting. Of course, people with HIV are getting older or are more and more living in congregate settings. And then a number of our patients work in congregate settings. So that was another important um, lesson for us from this particular series. Only two of our patients had a low CD4 count. All except one were on an antiretroviral therapy regimen and one last point to make from this series is that one of our patients with COVID-19 had not previously been diagnosed with HIV and actually had both HIV, AIDS, and cryptococcal meningitis, and all of that was discovered during his COVID-19 hospitalization. Now, in terms of answering the question, is HIV a risk factor for severe COVID-19? We know that from influenza that HIV is a risk factor, particularly if HIV is well is poorly controlled with a low CD4 count or with viremia, but we don't know the answer of uh, whether HIV is a risk factor for severe COVID-19. There are a lot of emerging data. It's being updated really almost on a daily basis. I've just picked out a couple of studies to highlight. One is a study from New York City, uh, from Mount Sinai, again from mid-March to um, late April. They had 88 people hospitalized with HIV compared to somewhere around 400 patients hospitalized without HIV. And what they concluded, and you can see this in the graphic on the right, is that there was no difference in COVID-19 severity or mortality by HIV status. So in this uh, US-based series, uh, no real impact um, uh, of COVID-19, I'm sorry, of HIV on, on COVID-19 severity or on mortality. Interestingly and importantly, among those people who had HIV, previous organ transplantation was associated with a higher rate of death. One of the largest studies uh, on this topic of HIV and COVID comes not from the U.S., but from South Africa. This comes from the Western Cape of South Africa, over 3.5 million um, public sector adults, about 500,000 or so had a, have HIV. They looked at about 12,500 COVID cases who did not um, uh, result in death and about 435 COVID deaths. What you can see in their bottom line here on the bottom of part of the graph in, in a red box is that there was a adjusted hazard ratio for death that was higher among those people who had HIV. It was about 1.78. Somewhat surprisingly, this was irrespective of viral suppression. One would have expected that poorly controlled HIV would have been associated and well-controlled might not. 
They cannot rule, though, uh, they cannot rule out, however, residual confounding. Um, they don't have data on socioeconomic status in this particular database. They don't have uh, data on obesity, and those two factors, of course, are associated with poorer outcomes. And it's also possible just by virtue of the fact that people with HIV are more um, involved in care that that might have also affected the results. So what um, I've, I and others have been thinking about with HIV and COVID is that they really are working as twin pandemics. Um, the non-HIV comorbidities are common in people with HIV and COVID, and I think it is these risk factors that are going to play a dominant role in the COVID-19 outcomes. There is a high rate of COVID-19 among racial and ethnic minorities, and that structural factors and healthcare disparities are driving these two uh, epidemics of HIV and COVID-19. There's a high rate of COVID-19 among people with HIV who live or work in congregate settings, and I think more must be done to protect these vulnerable people in these settings. And then in terms of the critical question of, is HIV a risk factor for severe COVID-19? Additional data are, are really urgently needed. There are some data coming out of the VA hospitals in the United States. I think if the impact is there, I think it's likely to be small, um, but more data is to, is to come. And I think next time we give this talk, we'll, we'll have more, more to share. The last two points I'll talk about, and these are briefer, is, um, and the first of these has relevance to counseling patients with HIV. Do our HIV medicines have any activity against SARS-CoV-2? So the drug that's gotten the most discussion here is lopinavir-ritonavir. Lopinavir-ritonavir in vitro inhibits the, the coronavirus protease. And lopinavir-ritonavir has been used off-label for people with COVID-19, not people with HIV, but people with COVID-19. In an early trial from China of about 200 people uh, who were randomized to either get lopinavir-ritonavir or standard of care, these are all people without HIV, there was really no difference between the two groups, uh, the group that got lopinavir-ritonavir, the group that didn't in terms of um, clinical outcomes. More recently, the same UK trial that I mentioned before um, reported out again through a press release um, their lopinavir-ritonavir versus usual care randomized outcomes. Uh, you can see their headline, no clinical benefit from lopinavir-ritonavir in people with COVID-19. About 1,500 or so patients got randomized to lopinavir-ritonavir. Again, these are people without HIV. Over 3,000 got randomized to usual care. And no difference at all in the 28-day mortality between the lopinavir-ritonavir group and the usual care group. They also commented that there was no evidence for a beneficial effect on progression to ventilation or length of hospital stay. Another large trial being done internationally called Solidarity also closed its lopinavir arm um, just about a week or 10 days ago. Now, why might these studies be reporting negative results? Just as a reminder, I mentioned earlier that lopinavir-ritonavir has an effect on SARS-CoV-2 protease, but it has an effect at a very high concentration. The effective concentration for the coronavirus is somewhere in the 16 microgram per mil range. For HIV, lopinavir is way more potent. You can see the difference is, is a hundredfold or so. Uh, interesting study from Austria uh, looked at what levels you get in people with COVID-19 with lopinavir-ritonavir, and it turned out that the levels you get with lopinavir-ritonavir at our usual dosing, HIV dosing, is way lower, 60 to 120-fold lower than what you need to inhibit the SARS-CoV-2 protease. So for patients who are asking, I think there's really no reason to think that the HIV protease inhibitors will have a benefit for, um, for COVID. 
The last study I'll share uh, is from Spain. This is looking at the question of do other antiretrovirals beyond the protease inhibitors have an effect on um, um, COVID-19? So they looked at 77,000 people now with HIV who are getting antiretroviral therapy in Spain. They looked at those people who got diagnosed with COVID-19, somewhere around 240. And they looked at those who were hospitalized or even died of COVID-19. The headline that came out, and a lot of our patients are asking about this, is that the group of people with HIV who were getting tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate, or TDFFTC, had a lower rate of hospitalization per 10,000 people than the individuals with HIV who were getting some other regimen, whether it be TAF or abacavir or something else. Now, I have not found this particularly convincing, in part because um, I think there could be a lot of residual confounding. Those patients who were getting TDFFTC might have been a lot younger, might have been um, people who had less likelihood of renal disease or other comorbidities, and therefore that might have confounded their observation. So when I counsel my own patients, I say to them, the people with HIV, right now I don't think we have evidence that either the tenofovir part of the regimen or the protease inhibitor part of the regimen um, would have an effect on their risk of COVID-19. And I urge people not to shift their regimen right now um, uh, and rather stick to the regimen that's working with their HIV. We don't have definitive data that any of the HIV meds help protect or uh, treat COVID-19. Here's my last couple of slides, and then I'll, then I'll wrap up. The last couple of slides is, what are the impact of COVID-19 on HIV care? And here, these are data that came out, uh, are really headlines that came out from last week's uh, AIDS 2020 meeting. And three just sobering facts. Um, one is a WHO survey has already identified significant disruptions in access to HIV treatment because of COVID-19 really around the world. A survey of over 13,000 LGBTI plus people in over 135 countries, not surprisingly, sadly, uh, uh, showed increased socioeconomic vulnerability. That's true of COVID, obviously, uh, throughout um, society. But concerningly, about a quarter of people with HIV reported significant difficulty, either interruptions in their access to ART refills or um, delays in access to ART refills, really highlighting the importance to trying to ensure our patients um, uh, stay on their ART and have access to their meds. And then Dr. Maratza later on this afternoon, will talk about this last point, but there are data from the U.S. already showing disruptions in PrEP care, um, especially among the vulnerable subpopulations and among the young, among non-whites, among Latinx, and among the publicly insured. insured. And Dr. Maratza will show, share a study that really speaks to that point uh, later on this afternoon. So here is my last slide in the last one minute. Final thoughts, and then I'll wrap up, or, or this is my wrap-up slide. There is a disproportionate impact on racial and ethnic minorities of COVID-19 and HIV, and this highlights, once again, how disparities drive disparate um, infectious diseases. We must address structural forces to end these intolerable inequities in healthcare access and outcomes for these twin epidemics. We can't let the COVID-19 pandemic cause us to lose sight of how far we've come in our quest to end the HIV epidemic. And despite the overwhelming need that we all face to respond to COVID-19, we must continue to move forcefully to end the HIV epidemic here and around the world. We've come too far, and it's just too important for us to, to lose, um, lose that momentum. 
So with that, I'm going to stop. Thank a number of people, uh, too many to count really, who have um, uh, shared slides and or thoughts with me. And with that, I think I am right on time, and I will um, turn it over back to you, maybe, Jeff, for uh, the question and answer moderation. Great. Thanks for the outstanding presentation, Raj. We'll jump right into the questions. Uh, so the first question is, is there anything such as asymptomatic COVID? Does everybody become symptomatic or what proportion of cases truly are asymptomatic? Yeah, that's a terrific question. Um, there are, there's evidence um, that some people get infected with COVID-19 but never become symptomatic. Um, some of the cruise ship studies from early on really sh showed that. Um, they relied on things like serology uh, after the fact to, to show that people had been um, exposed and infected. In terms of the proportion of people who never develop symptoms, it's an answer to which we don't yet know the answer. It's a question to which we don't yet know the answer, and it's a critical question. It can happen, but we don't yet know what proportion of people remain completely asymptomatic. As far as people who are hospitalized with COVID, when is it safe to stop isolation? Is it some period like 14 days with three days afebrile? Is PCR valuable? What are you guys doing at MGH? Yeah, it's a great question. We are generally um, following the CDC guidelines. Um, the problematic issue, of course, is that the PCR can stay positive sometimes for weeks, if not, if not months. When you look at data from around the world, for example, from Korea and, and even from China, the rate of transmission once people are beyond, say, eight to nine days of, of, um, of, of their COVID-19, they're not good. Um, uh, there's not good evidence that people are still transmitting. That's at least in immunocompetent people. Um, similarly, culturable virus seems to fall off after about eight to nine days. So we're using a, using a combination of either local guidelines as well as CDC guidelines in terms of when people come off of uh, precautions. Um, but the PCR is is staying positive longer uh, than, um, than, you know, when we have people on precautions. So. And before we go on to the next questions, um, a lot of which are around therapy, I really have to give a shout out to Tony Fauci, who has led the efforts to really have the U.S. groups at least um, trying to address many of these scientific questions and has supported science across the world as far as COVID is concerned. I would absolutely agree. And if I had thought of it, I would have worn my uh, uh, Fauci fan club t-shirt, which I'm a <laughs> proud owner of. And uh, I think next time I give a talk, I will be wearing that jacket. So. Okay. Uh, in, in your slide about antibody therapy, there's a lot of people that have been treated. Is there any kind of a systematic gathering of data about outcomes? Are we going to learn anything from all these individual treatments? Yeah, it's a good question. So in that, um, so the Mayo Clinic have, has led an effort to um, look at the safety of the convalescent plasma studies, and um, they have a, a preprint from a couple of weeks ago or two weeks ago, roughly, that looked at the safety. Uh, there are efforts to now go back, not just to look at safety, but also to look at efficacy, and so those efforts are ongoing. Um, there are also randomized trials. Uh, folks at Hopkins, as well as others, are leading randomized trials to, to try to answer that in, in the most definitive way. Um, so I, I think probably, I hope by the next time we give this talk, there'll be some some actual randomized control data to, to guide the, the, you know, to give an answer to that question. So okay, one question about diagnosis. You know, some patients are admitted with a clinical syndrome consistent with COVID, but are initially PCR negative. Do you? suggest any other testing or what would what do you do with those patients yeah uh, i think we've all seen that um and certainly during the months of march april may when massachusetts was hardest hit into early june we were seeing definitely patients who 
and who we were convinced they had COVID-19, either they'd been exposed, they had the exact syndrome that we would expect, the radiology, the laboratory tests, but their PCRs were negative. We um, uh, often would test those patients a second time with a, with a nasopharyngeal swab. And then if our suspicion was high enough, we would even do sputum testing. Um, one thing I didn't dwell on, but the, the virus starts out detectable in the nasopharyngeal swab, but then does shift into the lower respiratory tract. And so we have several cases where the uh, nasopharyngeal swabs were ne uh, negative, but the sputum tests were positive. These are hospitalized patients, of course. Um, not extremely common, but, but does happen. Uh, and so that had been our has been our approach to these highly highly suspicious cases. So, so the you know you covered a lot of the treatment trials that have been done, as you mentioned, in hospitalized patients. Are is there any data to guide us for people who aren't sick enough to be hospitalized but yeah. would yeah. want to be treated with something? You know, hydroxychloroquine, yeah. Yeah. vitamin yeah. D, anything else? Yeah, critical question, because, again, that's the majority of people in the world with COVID-19 and certainly in our country. Um, what I can say so far is, at least in the post-exposure prophylaxis setting, one trial, the University of Minnesota trial, didn't seem to show uh, a benefit. There is a, another trial that's led out of the University of Washington that is ongoing for post-exposure prophylaxis, critically important trial. I think we still need to see those results before we make a conclusion about hydroxychloroquine for post-exposure prophylaxis, but the data so far haven't supported it. In terms of early treatment, um, similarly, um, the University of Minnesota led a trial of early treatment, um, this time, again, with hydroxychloroquine. Those data, I understand, are forthcoming, and so we'll see if there's any um, specific um, signal there. Um, beyond hydroxychloroquine, there are a lot of things that are being studied. Um, monoclonal antibodies are being studied. The AIDS Clinical Trials Group is, is starting an outpatient study of um, monoclonal antibodies. So stay tuned for that if you're in a site that has a AC2G. Um, there's small molecules. Uh, one that's really interesting is called EIDD. They tend to have these, you know, <laughs> names that aren't so compelling, but EIDD is another one to keep an eye on. And then interferons are also being studied. The group at Stanford and elsewhere, I think Hopkins are, are doing some studies with interferon lambda, and there are other studies of that sort. Camostat. There's a long list of other outpatient studies, all of which we should really follow. Carefully. And with regards to that, Raj, we had two questions here about ivermectin, which is being used in South America in some instances. Any data? The data so far really um, suggests that just like with lopinavir, ritonavir, the amount of ivermectin you would have to take in order to get a, an effect on the virus is really just way beyond you, what you can do safely in a, in a human. Um, there are um, uncontrolled um, data that have... Um, or raise some interest in this, but I would say I'm very much not thinking that that's going to turn out to have a benefit. There are trials that are randomizing people um, to, to look at that. The data that kind of led to that buzz uh, was all in vitro, and the human trials are really not definitive. And personally, if you ask my personal opinion, I think you just can't get enough ivermectin into someone to, to have an effect. And then uh, we're out of time, so I'm sorry there's a lot more questions that people had. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of them, but thank you so much, Taraj, and we really appreciate your excellent presentation. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you.